It is um, it is a three bedroom, three bathroom apartment with a living room, a dining room, a dining room that allegedly seats 40 people. I don't know about that, but a library, a gallery, a dining alcove, a butler's pantry, a staff room, a kitchen and laundry in unit. It's on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on the corner of Madison and 66th Street. It is one block from Central Park. And it is currently on the market with an asking price of $6.1 million. This luxury slice of real estate is owned currently by former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. But that property, or the money from that property to be more specific, may soon be in the hands of former Fulton County election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. You likely remember Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for their incredibly emotional testimony before the House January 6th committee. That's when they described how a conspiracy theory about them somehow altering votes in the 2020 election, then amplified by Giuliani and fed to Trump, who amplified it even more. They described how that conspiracy theory turned the wrath of Trump's supporters against the two women and ruined their lives. Today, the jury in Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's civil defamation case against Rudy Giuliani, that started, that jury started deliberating. In August, the judge overseeing the case awarded a default judgment to Freeman and Moss on the actual issue of defamation. So that part has already been decided. Giuliani did defame Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. What the jury has to decide in the coming days is how much money Rudy Giuliani should have to pay these two women for that defamation. Today, in his closing statement, Freeman and Moss's attorney asked the jurors to award the women $24 million each. And that is just in damages for their injuries. Their attorney is also asking the jury to award punitive damages of whatever they think is appropriate in order to send a message to Rudy Giuliani. Now, in this trial, we have gotten even more detail about the threats Freeman and Moss faced because of Giuliani's conspiracy. We heard a voicemail left on Ruby Freeman's answering machine threatening to burn her store down. People left messages saying she should be lynched. They described how they fantasized about hearing the sound of her neck snap. And they found her and they intimidated her in her home. Shea Moss was so afraid of Trump's riled up supporters that in late 2020, she changed her hairstyle from this to this so that strangers wouldn't recognize her in public. It has since changed again, if you were wondering. Ruby Freeman started going by fake names and wearing a mask and sunglasses in public. Rudy Giuliani's conspiracy theory about Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss altering votes in 2020 has been debunked over and over again. And the damage that conspiracy theory has done is a matter of public record at this point. And yet, here is Mr. Giuliani on Monday outside of court for his defamation trial, potentially defaming these same two women again. Whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate if other people overreacted. But everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to Ruby Of course Freeman? I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. 
Stay tuned. For a week now, Rudy Giuliani has been hyping that he would reveal some big truth that would exonerate him and show that Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss really did alter the results of the 2020 election. He has been saying that 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 truth would come when he took the stand himself in this defamation case. And then today, on the final day of this trial, Rudy Giuliani did not take the stand. But maybe don't be too shocked that when it came time to present evidence, Rudy Giuliani came up yet again empty-handed. Maybe don't be too shocked about that. Now, I didn't just play that video of Rudy potentially defaming Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss again on Monday because it's almost comical how much the man overpromises and underdelivers. It seems here that Giuliani continuing to lie about Freeman and Moss matters substantively. Rudy Giuliani is already claiming that he is broke as broke can be. Last year, he nearly got thrown in jail after his ex-wife alleged he hadn't been paying his divorce settlement. Last month, the accounting firm that Giuliani used to value his assets for that divorce settlement, that accounting firm also sued Rudy Giuliani, alleging he did not pay his bills. Giuliani was even sued this year by one of his own former lawyers for allegedly not paying his own lawyer's bills either. So Rudy Giuliani claims he is real broke. And this defamation suit could cost him tens of millions more, unless he is hiding a few more luxury New York City apartments he can sell. This is all likely to hurt him financially a lot. And despite these financial straits, Giuliani is choosing to continue to open himself up to more potential defamation suits with the statements like the ones he made on Monday. But beyond the civil liability here, Giuliani is making the decision to continue to greatly antagonize two women who could potentially be witnesses in Jack Smith's federal criminal election interference case against Donald Trump, in which, by the way, Rudy Giuliani is unindicted co-conspirator number one. He is a lawyer, yes, but maybe not so much a legal scholar. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, who served as FBI general counsel and is a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team. He is now the co-host of the Indispensable podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. They have now written the word indispensable into the intro because that's how <laughs> firmly I believe in the essentialness of your podcast. Andrew, number one, in terms of Rudy Giuliani here, is it, I mean, how likely is it that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are called as witnesses in Jack Smith's federal criminal case should that go to trial? Highly likely. Highly, right? Yeah. Um, they, are, they are witnesses who are highly likely in the federal case as well as in the Georgia state case. In fact, in the Georgia state case, there are charges that really are all about the harassment and what happened to them. Um, but that's also true in the federal case. And there's, there's good reason... Um, it helps prove the case. It also helps make the case a little less abstract. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because um, as serious as that case is, um, it is an attempt and a conspiracy case. But with Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, it happened. Um, it's, it's like what's the evidence that we're going to hear, I think, in that case about the Capitol Police. This is not abstract. This isn't something that they tried and it didn't go anywhere. There are people who suffered. Um, and one thing I just wanted to note in your intro about Rudy Giuliani is the reason he's in the position he's in um, now in court, leave aside, of course, he, he, the judge found he did this, yeah. is 
Um, he did not participate in the discovery process over and over again. In other words, this is a civil case. The judge issued orders about both sides needing to give discovery back and forth. And he basically said, see ya, not doing it. He didn't repeatedly did not do that. So it's clear that the judge was saying, you know, you're hiding something. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because of your other civil problems. I don't know if it's criminal problems. But if you keep on just being contemptuous, um, this is what's going to happen. And she had to keep on taking steps of financial penalties. That's why there was a default judgment. He was not allowed to actually say to the jury, I can't afford to pay X, Y, and Z. Why? Because he refused to turn over any documents about his financial condition. Um, so it is, it's really important to remember that this is somebody who is the former mayor, the former head of the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, a senior member of the Department of Justice. And it's sort of an emblem of what this country has become, or at least a part of what this yeah, country absolutely. has become. And what, and what acolytes of Donald Trump have become, no matter what their backgrounds are in terms of justice. Right. Um, I, I do wonder, you know, there's a financial implication for Rudy if there's a bad outcome in this civil case. Yep. You know, the judge, the lawyers are asking for $24 million a piece, plus, plus. Um, but what are the implications as this case kind of foreshadows the Jack Smith federal case? I mean, how, how closely do you think the feds are going to be looking at the outcome here in terms of both the jury pool and also public opinion and then in terms of sort of the criminal aspect of it all? Well, I, I don't think it's terribly connected. Um, and, you know, we could expect a, a result of, you know, $10 million or $50 million. Who, who knows? But I think that the, the issue is not just um, sort of damages that these plaintiffs are clearly deserved because they've been harmed. And, yes, punitive damages with respect to Rudy Giuliani. But the message is not just to Rudy Giuliani. It is, it's a little bit like the Dominion case, which is that the message is to enablers of Donald Trump that if you engage in this conduct, this is what can happen. Um, and that it is, it, well, it doesn't involve jail time. It is a question of there being some legal accountability and deterrence for engaging in this kind of, of activity. In terms of the, the um, criminal case, if I were Jack Smith or on his team, I would mostly be looking to see how did Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss do on the stand um, you know, you have some sense of that from their congressional testimony, yeah. which you played. Um, and, you know, they, by all accounts, seem like, you know, they were victimized. Yeah. Um, and that is something that I think is like any juror, like, like we are reacting to it, saying this is just completely senseless. And um, it's like um, what Mr. Sperling said in, in the Georgia um, case, which was like, the, this is the violence that's going to happen if Donald Trump and his enablers continue engaging in this kind of conduct. The, but the, the jury that is going to be deciding on all this is based in Washington, D.C. And the, there is a lot of sort of concern on the part of Trump about who is going to sit on a jury if he has this federal case unfold in the beginning of March. Um, if the jury is very sympathetic to the case of Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss, does that not bode well for Jack Smith, who's going to have to pull people from the same selection of individuals? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I do think that prosecutors and defense lawyers obviously look at the venue they're in and they sort of worry about it the way that Jack Smith may be worried about a Florida jury. I mean, because, again, it only takes one in a criminal case um, to, to be a hung jury. Um, but I do think that jurors 
by and large, rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I keep on telling this story of um, the one juror who spoke in the Manafort trial, which was in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is sort of uh, sort of a mixed district yeah. in terms of politically. And um, she said she was a MAGA Republican. And she said I she literally said she left her MAGA hat in the car. And again, that's such a great image for that. She acted out of principle mm -hmm. um, in the same way you know, millions of Americans do and jurors do every day and judges and prosecutors and journalists and you know, every ordinary citizens do. So I think that um, there's no reason to think and to have this sort of um, racist views of that I think Donald Trump and some of his allies would have that, you know, that because of the makeup of the D.C. jury pool, that they're not going to have the same ability to be completely neutral and fair and impartial. Arbiters of justice. Um, we spend some time in the intro to this segment talking about Rudy Giuliani's financial straits, which are considerable. Basically, everybody he's been involved with in a professional capacity over the course of the last year is suing him, including his ex-wife, who's not involved with him in a professional capacity. If you're Jack Smith, people who are under pressure like this in financial straits, I mean, they're usually good candidates to try and become cooperators. But do you think that's even a question in Jack Smith's mind? I mean, Rudy Giuliani is an unindicted co-conspirator. He knows a lot about what Trump was thinking and what he did in and around January 6th. But it, it, Fonnie Willis has already taken that option off the table. Gi Giuliani is going to get prosecuted and may go to jail. Do you think Jack Smith ever toys with the idea? Do you think that's even an option in the federal case? Not at this point. Um, you know, you played the clip of on Monday, Rudy Giuliani announcing. Stay you, you tuned. Know, right. Stay tuned. I've got evidence. And and, this is, you know, I stand by what I said, which there's no evidence of that. Um, you, you, it is really impossible to put that person on the stand um, there. There's certain witnesses. Um, and I've been in this situation as a as a prosecutor where you're like, you know what? This person would have to be so corroborated on every single thing they said that it's not worth it. I'd rather just use the corroboration. I don't need the the, the baggage of a Rudy Giuliani. And also remember that if you allow someone to cooperate, it's a trade-off because, yes, they're convicted. Yes, they admit what they did. But they are going to get credit with the judge in terms of the sentence they get. So, you know, do you really want to be doing that with somebody um, who had every advantage yeah. that can be afforded to somebody in this world and squandered it in this way? And as you point out so rightly, knew better just knew yeah. better, had all the learning, had all the information, nice. and did what he did, allegedly. Anyway, Andrew Weissman. Nice to be here. Thank you for being here, as always. We have a lot more ahead this evening, including the potential conflicts of interest held by one Supreme Court justice and what that means for the question of accountability. But first, President Biden is changing his position on Israel's war publicly and especially privately. We'll have more details on all that coming up next. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. According to one U.N. official, since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, life inside Gaza has become a living hell. Gaza health officials say more than 18,700 Palestinians have been killed, 70 percent of them women and children. Shelters have been flooded by winter rains. People have resorted to drinking contaminated water. Aid agencies describe children and families roaming the streets, unable to find food and with nowhere to go. After nearly 10 weeks of fighting, the sheer scale of death and suffering in Gaza has finally begun shifting the American approach to Israel and its offensive. This was President Biden speaking to reporters today. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. Privately, Biden is reportedly more pointed. On Tuesday, the president told supporters at a closed-door fundraiser that the indiscriminate bombing in Gaza was beginning to cost Israel support around the world. And today, NBC reports that the White House has told the Israeli government that it wants Israel to end its large-scale ground campaign in Gaza and transition to a more targeted phase of its war against Hamas. Joining me now is my MSNBC colleague, Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi, thank you so much for being here. Um, First, I, I wonder what you make of the, the sort of slight discrepancy, but a meaningful one nonetheless, between what Biden is saying publicly and what he's saying privately and whether sort of the reasoning behind that and the shift in general, what you make of it. It's a great question. And I think no one quite knows what's going on. I suspect a lot of people around Biden are wondering what's going on because he's been front and center when it comes to the strategy on Israel. This is not something he's outsourced from the very beginning of this conflict. He was kind of scribbling his own uh, notes into speeches. He was saying his own things. We know he has a propensity sometimes to gaff. Uh, but what he said at the fundraiser a couple of days ago is fascinating because on the one hand, he says, uh, Israel's losing support internationally because it's killing so many civilians. He says they're doing indiscriminate bombing, which, by the way, is an admission by the U.S. president that Israel is committing war crimes. That's what indiscriminate bombing is under international humanitarian law. It's a big thing for the president to say. But in those same remarks, Alex, he says, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to protect Israel. That's what we're going to do. Uh, no matter what else happens. So there is this real uh, disconnect, not just between, as you point out, what he's saying publicly and privately, but between his words and his actions, because it doesn't matter how critical he gets of Israel. Ultimately, they're getting the weapons they need from us. At the weekend, he bypassed Congress to expedite the sale of tank shells, almost, I believe, 14,000 tank shells. When Donald Trump did that, 
uh, during the Yemen war to Saudi Arabia and bypassed Congress. Democrats were up in arms. Uh, this time round, I wish we could see more people saying, hold on, let's have Congress scrutinize this stuff. Let's have the State Department scrutinize whether American weapons are being used in alleged war crimes, because that's against American law, Alex. Well, and when you talk about the, the sort of ongoing uh, campaign in Gaza, for lack of a better term, um, the war, uh, the in some the war crimes potentially. I, I wonder. I, I do wonder if you you can make sense of the, the fact that Biden is saying publicly, the White House is saying we want this all to end in three weeks at the end of the war, and then. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister. Now, this is before we, we laid out that timeline America did. He said the war against Hamas would last more than several months. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it feels as if there is a, a sort of, if not a direct tit for tat, uh, a, a back and forth here that is not indicative of an Israel that is necessarily listening to America's prescriptions. Do you think that is just sort of Israel paving its own path? Or do you think that there is some actual currency to be gained in going up against a Democratic president who's up for re-election in 2024? Oh, very much so. And Benjamin Netanyahu's own political future is in trouble. He's deeply unpopular in Israel because of the massive security and intelligence failure on his watch. Uh, this is the guy who can say to his hard right constituency, I'm the guy who's standing up to Biden. I'm the guy who's preventing a two state solution, which the Israeli government is. Um, so he can do that for domestic consumption. Yov Gallant can say, look, we need more months to, uh, you know, defeat Hamas, which they haven't done yet, but they've killed a lot of innocent people in the process. The problem then becomes, is the U.S. government willing to do anything about it in a game of chicken when Benjamin Netanyahu is Joe Biden, who keeps telling people, he said at this fundraiser, I disagree with Bibi, but I love the man. He keeps saying, I love the guy. Well, this guy could cost you your presidency, Mr. President. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because people think the American president, well, you know, Israel will do its own thing. Let's be real, Alex. The American president, Joe Biden, could end this war, which, as you pointed out, has killed, you know, 18,000 people, uh, more than 7,000 kids. He could end that war with a single phone call. We know this because he's done it before. In 2021, when Israel was bombing Gaza, uh, last time around, May 2021, according to Franklin Furr in his biography of Biden, the president rang Netanyahu and said, we're out of runway. You got to end this. And he did. Ronald Reagan in 1982 famously rang the Israelis, said, I'm watching a Holocaust on my screens. You've got to stop this. In 20 minutes... The Israelis stopped bombing Beirut. And Reagan said, I didn't realize I had that power. So American presidents do have this power. The American government does have the power. The question is, is it willing to use it? Well, I, I, it's a good question to ask, especially because there's some reporting out there that Netanyahu and his you know, conservative allies in Israel would much rather see a Trump presidency. I mean, not only are potentially America's and Israel's interests not aligned on the sort of moral and ethical quandary in and around Gaza and, and the yeah. death toll there, there's this, this year, the, the basic political reality that it might behoove Netanyahu and his goals to not have Joe Biden in the White House. Do you think that's something the White House recognizes? I mean, it does, it does not seem like it seems like a feature, not a bug here. I suspect the White House, in terms of the political operation, does recognize that. The question is, does Joe Biden? Biden has this decades-long friendship with Bibi, as I mentioned. He says he loves the guy. He's known him for 50 years. The problem is Netanyahu gets along with Republican presidents. He got on very well with Donald Trump. Democrat presidents have never gotten along well with Netanyahu. Bill Clinton famously came out of a meeting with him and said, you know, who's the superpower here? Obama got insulted, humiliated by Netanyahu over Iran. And now you have Biden here, who could lose the presidential election because of this war. And meanwhile, Netanyahu I was like, well, I win either way because I get Trump back in a blank check, according to that reporting in Puck this week.
I do wonder, um, Mehdi, if you think anybody has an idea about how this will end. I mean, do, when, when you hear about what is going on in, in terms of how Israel is thinking about this, not only the timeline, but the suggestion that they have no interest in a two-state solution and the, 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 the reality that there's some research out there that Palestinians are not in full support of Hamas, but their overall support for Hamas has gone up since October 7th. That suggests that Hamas is not going anywhere. Sadly, the greatest recruiting sergeant for Hamas has been Benjamin Netanyahu in this war in Gaza, just as the greatest recruiting sergeant for al-Qaeda after 9-11 with George Bush and the neocons. We're repeating history in a very awful way. And Joe Biden gets that. He said it recently. Let's not repeat the mistakes we made after 9-11 that he supported. I just wish he would act on those words. Mehdi Hassan, thank you for being here, my friend. Thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks. Much more ahead tonight, including more pregnant women suing red states to have an abortion. But first, every single lawyer prosecuting a case against Donald Trump says they are after one thing and one thing only. We are going to tell you what that thing is and who might stand in their way. Coming up next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. If you violate the law, you have to be held accountable. Since the attack on our capital, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment. Accountability. Accountability. That is what every prosecutor who has charged Donald Trump for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election says they are seeking. Accountability. And right now, their pursuit of accountability increasingly depends on the nine justices of the Supreme Court. Just yesterday, the court agreed to hear an appeal brought by a man charged with obstructing an official proceeding on January 6th. That is the very same proceeding Jack Smith charged Donald Trump with obstructing, the certification of President Biden's win. And the Supreme Court's decision to weigh in here could impact Trump's own D.C. trial and whether it happens on schedule. Also before the Supreme Court right now is Trump's argument that presidential immunity shields him from the prose from prosecution in the special counsel's case. In taking up that case, the Supreme Court will also consider Trump's argument that the Constitution's double jeopardy clause shields him from prosecution as well, since Congress already impeached Trump for trying to overthrow the 2020 election. Mr. Trump has thrown a lot of spaghetti at the wall here in pursuit of a stay-out-of-jail-free stay card, and now the nine justices of the Supreme Court will be the arbiters of which arguments actually stick. So their opinions matter, as always. 
but especially their opinions as it pertains to what happened on January 6th. And one of those justices has a wife who pressed lawmakers in swing states to overturn the 2020 election results, who cheered on Trump supporters the morning of January 6th before things turned into a full-scale assault, writing on Facebook, love MAGA people, and a wife who exchanged at least 29 text messages with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows urging him to help overturn the 2020 election. The author of those texts was Ginny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, Ginny Thomas has sworn that her right-wing activism does not influence her husband's work. When she was called before the January 6th committee last year, she told them, it's laughable for anyone who knows my husband to think I could influence his jurisprudence. The man is independent and stubborn with strong character traits of independence and integrity. And yet, this is a couple that reportedly shares a brain. In a 2011 speech, Justice Thomas himself said of his wife, we are equally yoked and we love being with each other because we love the same things. We believe in the same things. And so this week, Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin and other Democrats have begun calling for Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from Trump's January 6th case. Senator Durbin told The Hill this week, there are so many unanswered questions about the relationship of the justice and his family with the Trump administration that I think in the interests of justice, Thomas should recuse himself. Now, whether Justice Thomas heeds these calls is very much an open question. Justice Thomas has only recused himself from one January 6th case. That's when the Supreme Court rejected a petition from John Eastman, who happens to be both Thomas's former law clerk and one of Trump's co-defendants in Georgia. Other than that, Thomas hasn't felt the need to step away from anything related to January 6th. And whether he decides that having a wife who was not simply a believer but a proponent of the big lie is sufficient enough conflict to step aside here, that will have meaningful impact on whether there is accountability or not. Coming up, more pregnant women are talking about why they need abortions, and Republicans would very much like to hit the mute button. More on that right after this. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, women have been coming forward with harrowing stories about difficult pregnancies that have put their lives at risk. In the past week, we learned about a woman in Kentucky who is now suing the state for access to an abortion. Jane Doe is approximately eight weeks pregnant and wants to terminate, but cannot because of the state's near total abortion ban. We don't know much about her pregnancy, but her attorney says that her embryo no longer has cardiac activity. Doe has filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of herself and any other person who is pregnant or could become pregnant in the state of Kentucky. Now, that lawsuit was filed a few days before Texas's Supreme Court ruled that another woman, Kate Cox, who sued to terminate a non-viable and life-threatening pregnancy, did not qualify for a medical exception to the state's extreme abortion ban. Now, these stories are clearly shifting the conservative narrative about who seeks abortions and why. So it is not exactly a surprise that Republicans do not want to have anything to do with it. 
Senator, are you supportive of the Texas Supreme Court's ruling in the Kate Cox case that prevented her from getting an abortion after she learned her fetus was not viable? Just call her press off. I actually have for two days now, and I still haven't received an answer. Thank you. Joining me now is Jessica Valenti, author and writer of the Abortion Everyday Newsletter. Jessica, thank you for being here. Initially, when I was told that there was a soundbite of Ted Cruz refusing to answer the question, I thought it was the one from earlier than week this week. But no, this no. is still the, the guy's position days later after he's had maybe time to think about how he would answer this question. And to me, it's so indicative of either a right wing that never considered that women who want to be mothers would have to deal with abortions or they just not thought women would never come forward with deeply personal stories. I wonder how you um, sort of assess this, this current position that you see these conservatives in. I mean, it is really interesting. They've had 50 years to prepare for this moment. They knew that these were going to be the consequences of their laws. And yet when faced with the actual consequences, they're literally running literally running from facing questions. And I think most importantly, from facing the women behind these stories, right? Um, there is a reason that Republicans right now are talking so much about um, democratic extremists, about the abortion industry. They don't want to own up to the fact that their political enemy right now is individual women, individual women and their families. It's not a good look. Yeah. I mean, and, and also just from sort of a political strategy standpoint, putting forth an abstract idea against a deeply visceral, personal, emotional story from an individual that could be your own neighbor or mother or sister, you know which one trumps in the end in terms of the court of public opinion. I, I got to ask you because, you know, it's not just access to abortions. It's now that states like Texas are trying to restrict interstate travel that is many, in many cases, in the case of Kate Cox, the sort of last option they have to terminate an unwanted pregnancy or a pregnancy that they wanted that they cannot go through with because it poses a risk to their own lives. Um, in Ireland, I don't, I think it was 2012, Savita Halaponavar uh, died of sepsis because she could not terminate a pregnancy um, that was non-viable. That changed Irish public opinion and effectively overturned one of the strictest abortion bans in the EU. And I wonder how you think these individual stories, both the ones like Kate Cox and Jane Doe and the ones that inevitably are forthcoming when there are women who mm -hmm. cannot leave the state are going to change our national uh, dynamic over this issue. I think they already are. I really think that they already are. Um, and that's why you see Republicans running from them. And I don't think that the women behind these stories, the women who are able to come forward, uh, right? Like it takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to share your story with the world and be open to harassment and all sorts of things. Um, these women are not going to let them ignore them. Um, I spoke a couple of months ago to a young woman, a 21 year old in Texas, whose fetus had developed um, not at all above the neck. It had developed without a head and she was still denied an abortion. She had to travel to New Mexico, was too afraid to tell any of her uh, friends, her family. Um, and what she said to me, I get emotional thinking about it. She said, I just want Ken Paxson to look me in the eye. 21 years old. I just want Ken Paxson to look me in the eye and tell me why I had to go through this. Yeah. They're not going to let these people forget. Yeah. The suffering that the, the, the effectively these Republican men are, are putting women through is so piercing and so deeply felt, I think, by people who are 
you know, across the country, which is why, Jessica, in Florida, right, there's a push to get um, an abortion ballot amendment in the state of Florida, right? It has, according to the Florida abortion rights group that's put, just sort of organizing this effort, 150,000 Republicans have signed a petition. I have got to imagine that the more you hear these stories, and they're not stopping anytime soon, right? In, in all likelihood, they're likely to get even more horrific and more gutting as time goes on. The more you're going to have Republicans stand up and say, this, what we did here is wrong. And the question is, at what point Ted Cruz or John Cornyn or any of the other Republicans who just say, call my press office, will actually acknowledge it. I mean, I just wonder, is it this year? Is it next year? Is it next month? Do you have a thought on how quickly this is all changing? I think they're going to continue to ignore it as long as they can. I mean, you know, you're talking about Florida. Over half of uh, Republicans polled in Florida said that they would vote for that ballot measure tomorrow. Um, and that is why they are trying to keep ballot measures away from voters, right? They don't want them to get to voters because they know once that goes to voters, they've lost. Um, and so I think what's becoming clearer and clearer is that they don't care what voters want. And even if they're Republican voters. Yeah, what is um, what I, it shouldn't surprise me, but their uh, right. their desire to fall on their swords at the cost of women's lives, people's lives across the country, just in the name of sort of political championship is a really a staggering thing. Jessica Valenti, um, the indispensable uh, newsletter that we all read with great regularity, Abortion Every Day. Thank you so much for Thank your time you. tonight. Thanks. Coming up, Hunter Biden is punching back. And we're going to discuss that with one of the architects of that new strategy, Congressman Eric Swalwell. That's next. I'm here today to make sure that the House Committee's illegitimate investigations of my family do not proceed on distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies. But I'm also here today to correct how the MAGA right has portrayed me for their political purposes. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. Hunter Biden told Axios today that he feels it's one of his responsibilities to now defend his father and to call out Republican lies as loud and as often as possible going forward, which is why he made those remarks just outside the Capitol yesterday. And he did so with the support of California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who reserved the spot so that Hunter Biden could speak to the press. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California. He's also a member of the Judiciary Committee and served as a House manager during the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Congressman Swalwell, thanks for being here. Um, to, the extent, thanks, to the extent that you are able to, could you help us understand a little bit of the deliberations that led to that moment yesterday outside the Capitol? Was there any reluctance on the part of Mr. Biden to speak to the public about an issue that is so fraught for his family? No, he's eager to tell his story publicly. And in fact, he was asked by Chairman Comer, the Republican chairman, to testify publicly. Multiple times, Comer said you could do it privately or publicly. And Hunter recognized that they were distorting the public or the private testimony that was taking place and that Republicans would rather have the mystery and the speculation of a closed door hearing than the truth come out and come to light uh, in a public hearing. And so uh, yesterday uh, was Hunter saying and raising his hand and saying, I'm here. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes in the past. Uh, but what you think happened never happened. And he wanted to bring that to light publicly. 
Do you think that this is going to be an ongoing strategy? I mean, are we going to hear more from Hunter Biden? Because Republicans are certainly not letting this go anytime soon. Does that mean Hunter Biden's going to be in front of the microphone for the next few months? Well, I hope his story is told because the Republicans have nothing. And in fact, what you will see, the more you learn, is that Hunter Biden, just like millions of Americans, was an addicted person who made mistakes in his personal life, had a father and a mother who loved him very, very much and helped him. And he's been clean for many, many years. But what's sick and perverse about this, and I say that as somebody who has a loved one that I've helped fight addiction, is that Republicans would weaponize his addiction because they have never accepted his father as the legitimate president of the United States. And so it's time to play on the Republican side of the field and say, if you want to talk about this, let's have a public hearing and talk about this. But that's not what they want because they have nothing. And so they will continue, whether it was through a violent insurrection to overturn the election or now through this impeachment inquiry or through the speculation around the president's son, they'll use every weapon in government to try and throw out Joe Biden because they've never accepted he is the lawful president of our country. There is some reporting, I think, in Axios that there's tension around this strategy of addressing the issue head on and publicly and that uh, talking about it, uh, you know, personally and publicly risks giving more oxygen to a fantasy that Republicans have concocted that somehow President Biden is implicated in all of this and has committed impeachable offenses. Do you think there's any merit to that wisdom that to talk about it gives it more oxygen? No, zero. I, I see a good and decent man in Joe Biden who united the country and all the evidence has shown that he loved his son. Uh, his son was on hard times and he bought his son a truck and his son paid him back. He loaned his brother money and his brother paid him back. Joe Biden is just a, a decent American who uh, fought MAGAism and is seeing them use this against him. And as I said, in this sick and perverse way. And so we also should just contrast, by the way, that while Joe Biden was helping his addicted son, Donald Trump in the White House with his daughter, Ivanka, who was getting patents granted to her from the Chinese or trademarks granted to her from the Chinese while he was president. And his son, uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was striking deals uh, over in the Gulf uh, worth billions of dollars while Donald Trump was having people stay at his hotel just a block away from the White House and making money himself. So it's just absurd that we would do anything but lean in on this and show one good, decent man and one very corrupt twice impeached, 91 felony count charged individual. I'll take that contrast any day. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that in sort of the broader context of how Democrats deal with Republicans in this day and age. On one hand, there's kind of a strategy that's been embraced by Governor Gavin Newsom uh, of California, which is effectively, and I'm sort of using my own colorful language, punch them in the face, right? Go to where they are, go to Fox News, talk to Ron DeSantis, put out the billboards, don't be afraid to take them on in the arena, and then there's kind of a strategy that's been embraced in previous years. Again, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but when they when they go into the muck, we we rise above. When they go low, we go high. And I wonder if you think those two are compatible in this day and age or whether, you know, Democrats need to choose between one or the other. No, I, I think we have a story to tell and we can't be too damn modest 
uh, in telling it. And, and we don't even have to lie or make things up about them. Uh, what they want to do, you know, to a woman in her right to make her own healthcare decisions, uh, to your kid in their right to read what they want to read in their classroom, or to your children and their right to go home safely after school and not be killed by gun violence. We have a story to tell, but we're too modest sometimes. And, and we stand on this false virtue sometimes as Democrats. And what I'm proposing is that too much is at stake in this upcoming election to just let them beat up on the president's formerly addicted son and not let him tell the story about how decent of a father he had to help save him from that addiction. So the suggestion here is Democrats reclaim the narrative and say it loud, I suppose. Congressman yeah, Eric Don't Swallow. hide under the bed. That's the what, rule. What's that? Yeah. Don't hide, un don't hide under the bed. That's don't the hide rule. under the bed. You heard it there. Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you for your time tonight, sir. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That is our show for tonight.